welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. It is another big, heady week of cases this week, but thankfully, the Supreme Court's term is finally over. And with it came what appears to be the death knell of the MPP, or Remain in Mexico program. Five justices held that the Biden administration could end the program, ruling against the states of Missouri and Texas. Justice Roberts authored the opinion, joined by Justices Kagan, Breyer, and Sotomayor, with Justice Kavanaugh providing the necessary concurrence. Worth noting, though, that Title 42 is still preventing asylum seekers from entering the U.S. as U.S. treaty obligations would appear to require. Also, I've been blessed with a 4th of July weekend visit from none other than certified financial wizard and podcast patron, Dave Burton. Dave, care to take us away this week? Thank you, Kevin. Respectfully, I decline. Back to you. Fair enough, Dave. Here are the cases. Starting off, we have Zepeda Lopez et al. v. Garland, published by the Second Circuit on June 28, 2022. This case is about a unique issue related to asylum. The petitioners are a family, and they're dual nationals of both Nicaragua and Honduras. They grew up mainly in Honduras but fled in 2014 after they were extorted and threatened with murder by the notorious 18th Street Gang. The gang almost strangled one of the family members to death. Quote, Petitioners sought help from the Honduran police, but the police responded only by saying that the family were dead people already, for calling the police, end quote. So they fled. They fled to the U.S. and not Nicaragua, at least in part, because prior to living in Honduras, some of the petitioners experienced criminal and sexual violence in Nicaragua. Plus, as discussed two weeks ago in that Ninth Circuit case, Nicaragua is currently a dangerous place for many people. The immigration judge held that the family did suffer past persecution in Honduras, but nevertheless denied asylum, ordering the family removed to Nicaragua. Because here's the thing. 
In the 2013 decision matter of BR, the BIA held that for dual nationals to receive asylum in the U.S., they must meet their asylum burden showing for both countries of nationality. The IJ held that that wasn't met here as to Nicaragua, and the BIA affirmed. Matter of BR is, after all, the BIA's own decision. But the Second Circuit did not, and in so holding held that the statutory text and legislative history unambiguously contradicts Matter of BR. No Chevron deference and Matter of BR is not good law in the Second Circuit. Apparently, this is the first published decision to address the issue, so this is a big deal. But it means no gong, unfortunately. But just you wait. Quote, the INA unambiguously requires an applicant for asylum to show well-founded fear of persecution in any one country of the applicant's nationality rather than in all such countries, end quote. Here's why. First, the definition of a refugee at INA section 101A42A. It gets pretty technical on the statutory language, but namely, what does the phrase, quote, any person, end quote, mean in relation to, quote, such person's nationality, end quote, all as used in the statute? Suffice it to say, the Second Circuit determined that in 1980, when the definition was instituted by Congress as today, quote, to qualify as a refugee, an asylum applicant need only show persecution in any singular country of her nationality, end quote. Because the statutory text was clear, no Chevron deference as Oil was arguing. Admin Law 101. And Oil definitely had a point. It appears that the original definition of a refugee from the United Nations Convention in 1967 does support Oil's argument, and the BIA's decision in a matter of BR was based in part on that UN convention. But to the Second Circuit, Congress used specific language when it implemented INA Section 101A42A. And quote, Congress did not incorporate this separate dual national definition into the INA, end quote. The text is the text, said the court. The Immigration and Nationality Act as a whole also supports the Second Circuit's reading. For example, there are bars to asylum even when someone is considered a refugee, like the firm resettlement bar, for example. But that bar has certain requirements that must be met. The point is that the INA envisions that refugees might not always get asylum when they have ties to other countries, but that's after the individual is already deemed a refugee. Those other additional requirements have nothing to do with whether the individual meets the definition of a refugee in the first place. Quote, the INA treats the determination of refugee status and the grant of asylum as distinct steps in the application process. End quote. And to be a refugee, you just need to meet your burden for one country of nationality. Finally, while the legislative history appears to be kind of a wash, old BIA decisions appeared unconcerned by dual nationality. So don't forget about those 1960s BIA decisions in your briefs, everybody. And what about the Soviet Jews, who the U.S. accepted notwithstanding their ability to go to Israel, pondered the court, thanks to Amicus? Aha! The Second Circuit went on for a few more pages to explain how the BIA misread the statute in matter of BR and remanded. Congratulations Christina Colon-Williams for petitioners and John Bauer for the Asylum and Human Rights Clinic of the University of Connecticut School of Law for amicus. And if you've got the guts to take on a Supreme Court quote. The Second Circuit reached this decision here, despite the Supreme Court's 1987 quote in INS v. Cardoza-Fonseca. 
that, quote, if one thing is clear from the legislative history of the new definition of refugee, and indeed the entire 1980 Act, it is that one of Congress's primary purposes was to bring United States refugee law into conformance with the UN Convention and UN Protocol, end quote. Pretty strong quote in support of Oil's position. But the Second Circuit was unswayed based on the actual statutory definition of a refugee used by Congress in the INA. An important argument to remember, especially with the current Supreme Court, statutory text trumps all. And that is Zepeda Lopez et al. v. Garland. Next is Matter of EFN, published by the BIA. This case is about adverse credibility. Mr. EFN is an asylum seeker from Cameroon who, like many of late, quote, alleges that Cameroonian authorities persecuted him in that country on account of his involvement with the Southern Cameroon's National Council, or SCNC, end quote. But an immigration judge found him not credible, in part due to, quote, inconsistencies between the respondent's testimony and images from the respondent's Facebook profile that DHS submitted during the respondent's cross-examination to impeach his credibility, end quote. In this decision here, the BIA held that that was proper. As we know, the federal rules of evidence don't apply in immigration court, but evidence can be excluded if introduction of that evidence is, quote, fundamentally unfair. End quote. Mr. EFN first argued that the Facebook images shouldn't come in because they're hearsay. But hearsay is admissible in immigration court, even if it's not admissible in Johnny Depp's trial. Had to do it. Now, the fact that it's hearsay might discount the persuasiveness of the evidence in immigration court, but it is admissible. Mr. EFN also argued that the evidence made proceedings fundamentally unfair because DHS didn't submit it within the court's pre hearing filing deadline and instead held on to the evidence and waited to file it during the hearing as impeachment. But here the BIA disagreed, quote, Evidence can be submitted for the first time during a hearing during cross-examination to impeach that witness's credibility, end quote. But remember, only if it's truly impeachment evidence. The BIA appears to be remembering that as well in a footnote. For what it's worth, the federal rules of evidence generally allow this, too. Evidence can be submitted for the first time for impeachment purposes. And, quote, the fact that the evidence in this case is admissible under the federal rules of evidence undermines the respondent's due process argument, end quote. But to me, the reverse is also true. The fact that evidence is not admissible under the federal rules of evidence, like hearsay, should support a respondent's due process argument. Even though non-citizens often benefit from the permissibility of hearsay evidence, I'm always down for a BIA decision that more closely connects immigration court procedures to the requirements under the federal rules of evidence to use the federal rules as a sword. That's just me personally. Anyway, with the evidence properly considered, the adverse credibility finding was upheld. For example, Mr. EFN testified that he was persecuted in prison from October 2011 to February 2012, and that he went into hiding afterwards, where he lacked access to electricity, a cell phone, and the internet. DHS, however, presented impeachment evidence showing that he, quote, shared pictures on his Facebook profile, end quote, during that time. Mr. EFN said that he didn't post them and that his girlfriend might have done it, but the IJ didn't believe that explanation. Also, it appears that there may have been inconsistencies regarding his role with the SCNC, 
as well as some inconsistencies with written statements submitted on his behalf and the plausibility of his reported medical injuries in Cameroon. As inconsistencies exist, quote, the immigration judge was not required to accept Mr. EFN's explanation, end quote. The BIA therefore upheld the IJ's adverse credibility finding. And that is a matter of EFN. Next up is Herrera Alcala v. Garland, published by the Fourth Circuit on June 30th, 2022. This case is about circuit venue and credibility. Mr. Herrera Alcala is from Cuba, entered the U.S. without authorization, and was detained in Gina, Louisiana, with an immigration judge sitting in Falls Church, Virginia. Remarkably similar to the BIA decision discussed last week in matter of Nikifor. It looks like EYR has created the Falls Church Immigration Adjudication Center, which I believe is a bunch of IJs whose sole task it is to decide cases over video and to decide motions, without ever actually having non-citizens physically in front of them. The question then is, as tangentially mentioned in Nikifor, which circuit case law applies to an adjudication center decision, and who do you petition for review to? That's a big deal as there are now quite a few immigration judge adjudication centers employing a lot of IJs. The BIA's decision last week would say that it's the law of the circuit where the non-citizen is being held in detention. But here, the Fourth Circuit said that it's the law where the IJ is sitting. INA Section 242b2 specifies that a petition for review of an order of removal, quote, shall be filed with the Court of Appeals for the judicial circuit in which the immigration judge completed the proceedings, end quote. The text of the statute focuses on the IJ and nothing more, including where DHS chose to begin the case or DHS chose to detain the non-citizen. End of story in this statutory text-based world. And so holding the 4th Circuit enters a circuit split with at least the 3rd, 10th, and maybe the 8th circuits. A bit unclear on the 8th. So 4th Circuit case law applies to this case rather than 5th Circuit case law. And the 4th Circuit will review this decision instead of the 5th. Pretty important on asylum cases like this, as I actually discussed last week a bit in my made-up example in Matter of Nikifor. Here, though, it did not benefit Mr. Herrera Alcala. Before we get to it, it's worth noting that Cubans used to benefit from a very, very special immigration framework, and they still kind of do. Unlike all other non-citizens under congressional law, if a Cuban is paroled into the U.S. after a year, they can apply to adjust LPR status simply because they're Cuban. It's an incredible law that no one else gets to benefit from. For years, under the wet-foot-dry-foot policy, if a Cuban reached U.S. soil, DHS would give them a parole document, and a year later, they could adjust status. But now the U.S. government does not have this blanket parole policy. So even though Cubans still have the beneficial adjustment of status law, they're largely in the same situation as other non-citizens if they enter the U.S. without authorization. Again, contrary to how it's been for like 60 years. And so, you have Cubans like Mr. Herrera Alcala asking for asylum, where for generations of similarly situated Cubans before him, they simply had to get to the U.S. A historical summary provided free of charge if you know any anti-immigrant voters along Calle Ocho. 
for all of those reasons. Mr. Herrera Alcala had a lot, lot more things that he needed to prove from detention, by the way, if he was going to get a chance to stay in the U.S. I've already been talking a bit, and the case is quite long, so here's the rundown. Mr. Herrera Alcala claimed to be politically opposed to the regime in Cuba and to have been beaten and severely harmed by the police in Cuba. He had a big story, and he corroborated a lot of it. But unfortunately, he apparently didn't tell DHS much of this during his credible fear interview when he was first encountered near the border. And similar to what the BIA just mentioned, quote, once inconsistencies and omissions are identified, the agency need not accept the petitioner's explanation for them, end quote. Not only that, but where, as here, according to the Fourth Circuit, quote, an omitted incident is of the same kind as those central to the petitioner's claims, the incident goes to the center of his testimony, and thus is almost always material, end quote. Among a few things, Mr. Herrera Alcala's apparent failure to discuss the police persecution that he claimed during his credible fear interview tanked his case. Nor did the IJ err in finding that Mr. Herrera Alcala's recovery without medical attention, or Cuba's providing him a visa while simultaneously apparently seeking to persecute him, were not plausible. Adverse credibility findings can be very hard to get around, and even harder to challenge on petition for review. But remember this, quote, Plausibility is to be evaluated with a common-sense approach that considers the totality of the circumstances, end quote. I can dig it. Anyway, very fact-specific adverse credibility decision, as many often are, with 17 footnotes. Convention Against Torture Protection was denied too, as not independently established without Mr. Herrera Alcala's testimony. So, and while it's technically a loss, I think it's a big win on venue and circuit law. So congrats to Christopher David Boom for petitioner, from none other than the Miami-based law firm of Carlos Duque and Laura Kelly. Laura Kelly, of course, was on the pod earlier this year for that exceptionally helpful interview on attorney wellness, and now has her own firm. Thanks for making some good law, guys. Also, I see you, Ben Winograd, on Amicus. One more thing on circuit law and venue. Remember, quote, the venue statute focuses on where the immigration judge completes the proceeding. And here, the immigration judge was in the Fourth Circuit when he completed the proceedings, end quote. That's an important holding, as I've tried to make clear. To conclude, though, and in a footnote, while the Fourth Circuit is tying the venue and circuit law to the immigration judge's work location, the Fourth Circuit expressly does not, quote, address whether an immigration judge acts from his assigned work location while physically located elsewhere, such as while on vacation, end quote. Exceptionally hardworking as they are, and I mean that sincerely, I do not believe that this not-illegal question will present itself anytime soon. And that is Herrera Alcala v. Garland. Moving on, we have Antonio v. Garland, published by the Sixth Circuit on June 29, 2022. Short case about stays of removal. Mr. Antonio is from the Dominican Republic and, quote, was involved with serious drug trafficking gangs, end quote. As relevant here, he was denied Convention Against Torture deferral before an immigration judge in the BIA, and his case is currently pending before the Sixth Circuit. 
may be surprising to some, even before a circuit court rules, and even if someone fears torture in their home country, they can be removed to that country before a circuit court rules and decides whether the BIA was correct. Then if that person wins before the circuit court and they're still alive, the U.S. government must find them and bring them back to the U.S. And here it's a bit more remarkable because apparently, quote, everyone agrees that Mr. Antonio will likely be tortured if he is removed to the Dominican Republic, end quote. And yet still, unless the Sixth Circuit grants him a stay, he will be physically removed to that country before the Sixth Circuit has a chance to decide his case in chief. Oil opposed to stay. To grant a stay, the courts balance the Supreme Court's Nick and V. Holder factors. Those factors are 1. Whether the stay applicant has made a strong showing that he is likely to succeed on the merits. 2. Whether the applicant will be irreparably injured, absent a stay. 3. Whether issuance of the stay will substantially injure the other parties interested in the proceeding. And 4. Where the public interest lies. In this case, and perhaps unsurprisingly, the fact that everyone agrees that he's going to be tortured is a, quote, remarkably strong satisfaction of the irreparable harm factor, end quote. Yet still, under Nikon, Mr. Antonio must show a, quote, strong showing of likelihood of success on the merits, end quote. That is, can he prove that the BIA was wrong to deny him cat deferral? After all, for example, he must show that the country's government will acquiesce or consent to the torture that everyone agrees he will likely suffer. But, quote, a strong showing does not mean proof by a preponderance. Once again, that would spill too far into the ultimate merits for something designed to protect both the parties and the process while the case is pending, end quote. Love me some alliteration. Here, the Sixth Circuit believed that standard met. It appears that the IJ and the BIA may have improperly disregarded country condition reports, or at least not given them the weight that they deserved. Plus, those reports appear to corroborate Mr. Antonio's claim, at least at the lower level of review being applied here for stays of removal. Indeed, those, quote, serious drug trafficking gangs might have control over the Dominican Republic police forces, meaning he might not be protected by the government from the torture to which he will be subject upon his return, end quote. Not only that, Mr. Antonio, quote, has made a substantial showing that one of his torturers in the past was a police officer. End quote. Pretty strong showing on government acquiescence. Accordingly, end quote, in light of his strong showing of irreparable harm, his arguments present a sufficient likelihood of success to weigh in favor of granting a stay pending an appeal on the merits. End quote. The government's public interest in removing non-citizens doesn't outweigh this showing. Mr. Antonio gets to stay in the U.S. pending a decision in his case. Congratulations, Stephanie M. Bloom and you. For petitioner. And that is Antonio V. Garland. Next up is Baradash Jacom, the Attorney General of the U.S., published by the Third Circuit on June 30th, 2022. This case is about jurisdiction and aggravated felonies. Mr. Baradas Jacom is from Mexico, was brought to this country at six years old, and has held DACA for many years. But DACA doesn't provide him a path to citizenship, and in 2019, he pled guilty to some crimes, including receiving stolen property in violation of 18 Pennsylvania Consolidated Statute Section 3925A, and he was sentenced to 12 to 24 months imprisonment. 
deeming the conviction an aggravated felony and not wanting to have to argue it before an IJ, DHS initiated expedited removal proceedings against Mr. Baradas Jacom, using the authority that Congress provided to the federal government in 1997. Mr. Baradas Jacom was provided 10 days to figure out what to do, likely from detention and without an attorney, and he seems to have conceded removability and requested withholding of removal and cat protection from Mexico. DHS then determined that he did not pass his reasonable fear interview, meaning he would not get a chance to apply for the relief and protection before an IJ, and DHS issued a final, expedited order of removal against Mr. Baradas Jacom and IJ affirmed DHS's no reasonable fear finding. Mr. Baradas Chacon petitioned for a view to the Third Circuit and received pro bono counsel from the Third. And here at the onset, the Third Circuit issued some fairly non-citizen-friendly jurisdiction holdings. Namely, even though Mr. Baradas Chacon did not actually argue from prison pro se and in the 10 days provided to him that his conviction wasn't an aggravated felony, the Third Circuit decided that it could review that issue itself. And that's because, joining the Fourth and the Fifth Circuits in a split with the Eleventh Circuit, the Third Circuit held that, quote, DHS has not made legal challenges available to non-citizens during expedited removal proceedings, so the INA's exhaustion requirement does not deprive us of jurisdiction, end quote. Welcome back, Mr. Gong. To be fair, DHS's regulations permit factual challenges to expedited removal. You know, like the non-citizen can argue that he's not the subject of the conviction, or that he didn't actually get the conviction, that kind of stuff. But nowhere do the regulations or procedures employed by DHS permit an express legal challenge to a removability finding, and nothing really seems to mandate review of the DHS officer's legal decision. An officer who, by the way, quote, need not be an attorney, end quote. A bit counterintuitively, then, it appears that all of this means that non-citizens in expedited removal proceedings have more rights at the DHS and IJ level in the 11th Circuit, but can more easily obtain circuit review in the 3rd, 4th, and 5th Circuits. All right. So the Third Circuit reviewed the complicated legal question of whether receiving stolen property in violation of 18 Pennsylvania Consolidated Statute Section 3925A satisfies the aggravated felony definition at INA Section 11A43G. The Third Circuit concluded that it does. The categorical approach applies, and Section 11A43G defines an aggravated felony as a theft offense, including receipt of stolen property, where the term of imprisonment is at least one year. Mr. Baradas Chacom definitely has the term of imprisonment, but do the Pennsylvania crime's elements match the federal definition of an aggravated felony? They do. Here, the argument mainly came down to mens rea, or mental state. The generic federal definition of a theft offense, quote, requires actual knowledge or belief that the property was stolen, end quote. Mr. Baradas Chacom argued that his Pennsylvania receipt of stolen property conviction did not require that mental state, and it requires merely a reason to believe that the property was stolen. Still criminal, but less culpable. Problem is, according to the court, that the Third Circuit reviewed a nearly identical New Jersey statute and similar Pennsylvania statute in published decisions in the past, and has held otherwise. The Third Circuit believed that Mr. Bradash Jacom was relying upon outdated Pennsylvania state case law to support his argument, 
and that more recent Pennsylvania Supreme Court case law requires the same mental state as the federal theft offense aggravated felony. Mr. Bradasher Combs' expedited removal order stands. But permit me, if you will, to return to expedited things. Back to the whole ability to challenge removability thing in expedited removal proceedings. It's worth wondering how DHS's expedited removal regulations provide constitutional due process to non-citizens in the U.S. if they don't permit legal challenges to removability determinations made by a DHS officer. An officer who, again, quote, need not have any legal training, much less be a lawyer, end quote. Perhaps DHS should change its procedures and permit challenges to removability. I suppose that's an inquiry for another day, because indeed, quote, nothing in our opinion prevents DHS from revising the I-851 response form to clarify that DHS wishes to require non-citizens to raise legal challenges in expedited removal proceedings, end quote. And that is Baradash Chacon, the Attorney General of the U.S. Moving on to the first of two Ninth Circuit cases about a Mr. Hernandez. This is Antonio Hernandez v. Garland, published by the Ninth Circuit on June 27, 2022. This case is about LPR cancellation of removal. Mr. Hernandez is from El Salvador and came to the U.S. in 1993 at age 11. Accordingly, if a bit of a misnomer, he was granted special rule cancellation of removal and adjustment of status to lawful permanent resident under Section 203 of the Nicaraguan Adjustment and Central American Relief Act, or NICARA, in 2002. NICARA is simply another acronym in a long list of weird things in our patchwork immigration system. NICARA applied and applies to a variety of people in a variety of circumstances. As applicable here, under NICARA, certain non-citizens could essentially apply for and receive green cards with former INS, now USCIS, if they established, again essentially, that they were eligible for suspension of deportation, the much easier to obtain precursor to non-LPR cancellation of removal. NICARA is a bit complicated. Mr. Hernandez appears to have done just that. He was never in removal proceedings, and he was never served with an NTA or an order to show cause, the NTA's predecessor. He received his green card through an approved application for NACARA with former INS. But he didn't naturalize. They never do on the show. And in 2014, he was convicted of possessing methamphetamine in violation of California Health and Safety Code Section 11377A. He received no jail time, and he successfully completed a rehab program, but DHS placed him in removal proceedings, charging him as removable for having been convicted of a law relating to a controlled substance under INA Section 237A2B-I. But I mean, is he? Doesn't look like he would be in the Seventh Circuit, after Aguiar Zunega v. Garland discussed two weeks ago. And as a few listeners pointed out after that episode, the Ninth Circuit itself actually issued a similar precedential decision on isomers four years ago, but then it vacated the decision. Perhaps the Ninth Circuit is ready to follow the Seventh Circuit and rule again? Anyway, not an issue here because Mr. Hernandez conceded removability and applied for LPR cancellation of removal under INA Section 248A. 
No hardship showing required, and Mr. Hernandez appears to be substantively eligible, but for one big problem. Under INA Section 240A-C6, a non-citizen, quote, whose removability has previously been cancelled under this section, end quote, cannot receive a second grant of cancellation of removal. The question here then becomes, is NACARA cancellation of removal as understood by INA Section 240A? After all, Mr. Hernandez received it without being placed in removal proceedings, and so, the argument goes, there was no imminent removal to cancel. If it's not, Mr. Hernandez remains eligible for INA Section 240AA, cancellation of removal, and he very well might receive it. Well, according to the Ninth Circuit, NACARA special rule cancellation is cancellation of removal, and Mr. Hernandez cannot apply for LPR cancellation of removal. To obtain NACARA relief, said the Ninth Circuit, Mr. Hernandez had to swear under penalty of perjury that he was subject to deportation or removal if his application wasn't granted. And the technical legal thing that he received was, quote, suspension of deportation or special rule cancellation of removal and adjustment of status, end quote. Perhaps more importantly to the court, quote, a plain reading of NACARA Section 203 indicates a clear intent by Congress that adjustment of status occurs if, and only if, cancellation of removal is granted. Simply put, NACARA is not just adjustment of status, it's cancellation and then adjustment. The Ninth Circuit went on for a few pages to explain in further detail why, considering the INA's statutory scheme as a whole. Apparently, this aligns with the 2013 Sixth Circuit decision. It also aligns with the BIA's own decision in matter of, you guessed it, Hernandez-Romero, published in 2021, a decision that Liz summarized on episode 68, so check it out. That means that the Mr. Hernandez here cannot apply for cancellation of removal even if he warrants it, which means he will likely be removed. And that is Antonio Hernandez v. Garland. Next up, Alberto Hernandez v. Garland, published by the Ninth Circuit on June 28, 2022. This case is mainly about admissions and temporary protected status. Mr. Hernandez is from El Salvador, entered the U.S. lawfully in 1999, and received TPS in 2003 after that country was designated, benefiting certain nationals of El Salvador present in the U.S. during a certain limited period of time. Mr. Hernandez was one of them. Now, the Trump administration tried to take TPS away from El Salvador, but federal judges found that the Trump administration had racist motivations and additionally violated the law in its many TPS terminations. Then, subsequent executive actions from the Biden administration prevented the various TPS terminations from going into effect. None of that latter stuff actually mattered to Mr. Hernandez, though, because in 2010, he became a lawful permanent resident. I suspect he married a U.S. citizen and could adjust because his initial entry into the U.S. was lawful. But then in 2014, 2015, and 2016, Mr. Hernandez was convicted of domestic violence with injury under California Penal Code Section 273.5a and sentenced to 4 days, 30 days, and then 364 days, respectively. In all three cases, the victim was his now ex-wife. Mr. Hernandez was also convicted of taking a vehicle without the owner's permission and receiving or purchasing stolen property. 
For his receiving stolen property conviction, he was sentenced to 16 months imprisonment, and he served 200 days. So all that's pretty bad, although that latter conviction was subsequently vacated. Let's cut to the chase. He's removable and everyone agrees. In defense, however, Mr. Hernandez applied for LPR cancellation of removal under INA Section 248A. That's the relief that the other Mr. Hernandez that we just discussed was also trying to get. LPR cancellation of removal requires, among other things, that the non-citizen have been in LPR for five years and have resided in the U.S. continuously, quote, after having been admitted in any status, end quote, for seven years before applying. Mr. Hernandez had the five years in LPR status here, but he only has the seven years in any status if his time with TPS qualifies as having been admitted in any status. The IJ and the BIA held that it did not. In this case, the Ninth Circuit agreed. Under the INA, the term, quote, admission, end quote, is defined as the, quote, lawful entry of the non-citizen into the United States after inspection and authorization by an immigration officer, end quote. That's only the beginning, though, at least in the Ninth Circuit, because case law has expanded that definition over time, for example, to adjustment to LPR status inside the U.S. That can be an admission. The Ninth Circuit has also expanded the term admission to other contexts, such as benefits received under the Family Unity Program, or FUP, although the BIA later disagreed with that, and then the Ninth Circuit deferred to the BIA. So no more FUP admissions. But even losing on the FUP, it still remained law in the Ninth Circuit that, quote, individuals could be considered admitted in any status, notwithstanding their lack of admission, under INA Section 101A13A, if there are compelling reasons to depart from the statutory definition, end quote. That was until the Supreme Court's decision in Sanchez v. Mayorkas last term, discussed on episode 59 of the podcast, regarding the adjustment of status relief provision, which requires an inspection and admission. That case held that TPS was not an inspection and admission for adjustment of status purposes, and that's the big holding the Ninth Circuit panel is making here. Quote, Our precedent judicially expanding the statutory definition of admission based on the benefits conferred by a lawful status is clearly irreconcilable with Sanchez's holding that lawful status and admission are distinct concepts in immigration law. End quote. How does that relate to TPS? Well, Sanchez was a TPS case, and according to the Ninth Circuit, quote, Sanchez is clear that no matter how great those benefits, TPS does not constitute an admission to the United States, end quote. If it's not an admission, it can't be an admission in any status, as required for Mr. Hernandez to get his necessary seven years required to make him eligible for non-LPR cancellation of removal. It's a big loss for Mr. Hernandez and an even bigger loss for non-citizens in the Ninth Circuit. It appears that the line of cases expanding the term admission in the Ninth Circuit is largely, if not entirely, overruled, at least where based on pseudo-status benefits. I see nothing in this decision that would overrule the Ninth Circuit's precedent that, for example, a border wave-through will qualify as an inspection at admission or parole. Confusing stuff and likely a whole week of Immigration Law 101 so always freshen up. Anyway, the Ninth Circuit conducted its own statutory analysis similar to the Supreme Court's in Sanchez and ruled against Mr. Hernandez. 
but that still left Mr. Hernandez's alternative application for asylum. However, the Ninth Circuit also upheld the IJ and the BIA's finding that his 2016 domestic violence crime was a particularly serious crime such that Mr. Hernandez does not qualify for asylum. As often discussed, this is a multi-step analysis requiring first that the conviction be the type of conviction that could be particularly serious if the facts and circumstances so indicate. But violent crimes are pretty much always held to be this type, so this decision comes down to the facts and circumstances. Mr. Hernandez argued that the IJ and the BIA erred in considering the quote, cumulative effect of his three domestic violence convictions instead of considering his third conviction in 2016 alone, end quote. But the Ninth Circuit disagreed. Well, that is to say that the Ninth Circuit disagreed that that's what the agency did here. Had the agency considered all three crimes together in its particularly serious crime analysis, that would have violated Ninth Circuit precedent. So remember that. But in this case, the Ninth Circuit held that that's not what the IJ and the BIA did. They only considered the facts and circumstances of that third domestic violence conviction. Under Ninth Circuit precedent, an IJ may find a conviction, quote, particularly serious in light of the previous convictions, end quote, but may not view the convictions cumulatively to decide that altogether the convictions rise to the level of a particularly serious crime. It's a fine line, and the IJ and the BIA walked that line correctly here. Deeming any other arguments waived, the Ninth Circuit ruled against Mr. Hernandez. But how about this? After I recorded this case, per a July 1st, 2022 policy memorandum, USCIS formally rescinded the adoption as precedent of matter of ZRZC. And USCIS appears to be implementing a policy now whereby it will issue travel documents for TPS holders and then deem them inspected and admitted for adjustment of status purposes upon their return to the United States. I imagine USCIS will also be reconsidering their last few years of denials. I haven't had a chance to review this memo yet, but it's a great decision by USCIS for keeping families together. Elections matter. And that is Alberto Hernandez v. Garland. Moving on to Sarkar v. Garland, published by the Ninth Circuit on July 1st, 2022. This final Ninth Circuit case, published Friday afternoon and after I recorded the Fifth Circuit case that I'm about to get to, is about changed country condition motions to reopen. Mr. Sarkar and his family are from Bangladesh. Mr. Sarkar entered the U.S. on a visitor visa many, many years ago and overstayed. Placed in what was at the time called deportation proceedings, he applied for asylum, but he didn't show up to a hearing and he was ordered removed, although he may have technically been ordered deported, in 1997. But an IJ reopened proceedings in 1998, and then the IJ denied the asylum application. Mr. Sarkar moved to reopen six months later, arguing materially changed country conditions in Bangladesh. It was all denied, including all the way up to the Ninth Circuit by unpublished opinion. Then the same thing happened a few years later, this time via a motion based on ineffective assistance of counsel. Mr. Sarkar filed a third motion to reopen in 2017, based on another claim of materially changed country conditions. The Ninth Circuit recognized that, if shown, materially changed country conditions would permit an exception to both the number and time bars to motions to reopen. 
Mr. Sarkar's third motion to reopen could win, if proven. Mr. Sarkar's initial application for asylum was based on his political involvement with the Jatiya party. But according to him now, and quote, while Islamic extremists have always existed in Bangladesh, he has begun to witness from afar slow but steady capitulations by the government to extremists, end quote. He stated in his motion to reopen that he is now, quote, known in the Bangladeshi expatriate community as a fierce opponent of religious extremism, end quote. And he, of course, submitted supporting evidence. The BIA believed, however, among a few things, that even if extremist violence has increased in Bangladesh, Mr. Sarkar, quote, and his family face the same risk as the general population, end quote. So they hadn't shown that they were likely eligible for asylum or convention against torture protection now, as change country condition motions to reopen require. Up to the Ninth Circuit it went, and just before oral argument, Oil and Mr. Sarkar filed a joint motion to administratively close the case, as ICE did not believe Mr. Sarkar an enforcement priority. In this decision, the Ninth Circuit denied that joint motion, did not find that Mr. Sarkar's motion to reopen was barred, but then held that he hadn't established that reopening was warranted. First, Circuit Court Administrative Closure While federal circuit courts like the Ninth Circuit have the inherent power to manage their dockets and administratively close cases, and even though the parties were in agreement to do so here, quote, there is no indication that the orderly course of justice will be served by an indefinite stay, that is, that the case will be easier to decide at some later date, end quote. That's the most important standard to the panel when deciding a motion to administratively close in circuit court, and so it denied the party's joint request. Indeed, in a quote that I like very much for other contexts, although the Ninth Circuit has pretty broad discretion here, and although the Ninth Circuit at least recognizes that ICE also has broad discretion not to seek the removal of non-citizens, quote, as the Supreme Court has instructed, discretion is not whim, end quote. Turning then to the motion itself, the Ninth Circuit upheld the BIA. In summary, the new evidence of extremism in Bangladesh just doesn't relate to Mr. Sarkar or his 30-year-old case sufficiently. His fears were deemed, quote, too speculative, end quote, and insufficient to, quote, demonstrate an individualized risk of persecution or that he would be subject to a pattern or practice of persecution based on his political affiliation, end quote. Therefore, the Ninth Circuit upheld this third denial. But all may not be lost. In this case, the Ninth Circuit relies on the former ICE OPLA director's prosecutorial discretion memo to explain all the things that ICE has discretion to do in immigration cases. To me, the Ninth Circuit's decision to note all the things that ICE is expressly permitted to do as a matter of discretion may go a long way in arguing that ICE indeed has such powers within the Ninth Circuit. Notwithstanding what federal district court judges sitting in Ohio, Louisiana, and Texas have recently held. Just a thought. And that is Sarkar v. Garland. That leaves us to conclude with Digi v. Garland, published by the Fifth Circuit on June 29, 2022. This is a case about changed country condition motions to reopen that made me do a double take. And it actually involves two individuals, Mr. Digi and his wife, Ms. Muliani. They're a married couple who entered the U.S. with temporary visas 20 years ago, and they overstayed. 
They're from Indonesia, but they're ethnically Chinese. They were ordered removed in absentia in 2000. But the petitioner's attorney was way ahead of the game. Their NTA lacked the date, time, and location of their first removal hearing. They missed that first hearing, and they were ordered removed in absentia in 2000. But in 2007, way before Nez Chavez and Pereira, the petitioner's attorney filed a motion to reopen based on the deficient NTA. The IJ, the BIA, and the Fifth Circuit at the time all denied the motion. But that motion should have totally been granted now, based on the Fifth Circuit's own decision in Rodriguez v. Garland, discussed on episodes 104 and 75 of the podcast. But anyway, the motion was denied way back when. Following Pereira in 2018, the petitioners filed another motion to reopen, arguing that conditions had materially worsened in Indonesia since 2000 such that they were now eligible for asylum. Quote, they submitted 33 news articles as well as other pieces of evidence. End quote. They also argued that, as the initiating NTA lacked the date, time, and location of the first hearing, that they now qualified for non-LPR cancellation of removal. That's an argument that, for example, the Ninth Circuit agreed with in Cantor v. Garland, discussed on episode 80. The BIA denied the motion. And here, the Fifth Circuit did too, issuing a huge holding adverse to non-citizens in the process. Under the statute and the regulations, generally, non-citizens may only file one motion to reopen, and that one motion to reopen must be filed within 90 days of the final order of removal. However, under the statute, there is no time limitation on the filing of a motion to reopen if the basis for the motion is to apply for asylum or withholding of removal, and is based on materially changed country conditions in the country of removal. The accompanying Department of Justice regulation and BIA precedent and everything I thought I knew about motions to reopen goes on to state that if a changed country condition motion to reopen is made, and if materially changed conditions are established, it'll waive the time and the number limitations to a motion to reopen. Not so, said the Fifth Circuit. Well, I mean, yes, the regulation says that, but according to the Fifth Circuit, that regulation is, quote, invalid because it contradicts the INA, end quote. According to the Fifth Circuit, even though the statute waives an untimely motion to reopen to apply for asylum and withholding of removal, the statute does not waive the number bar. The Fifth Circuit held that the regulation goes farther than the statute and is therefore invalid. Wow. Oil was arguing to defend the BIA's approach and the regulation, so this is the Fifth Circuit on its own here. Quote, To the extent a regulation attempts to carve out an exception from a clear statutory requirement, the regulation is invalid. End quote. A helpful quote to challenge regulations or attorney general decisions expanding statutory requirements like, say, in the particularly serious crime context and matter of YL. But it's a devastating rationale to the petitioners here. The Fifth Circuit goes on to explain its statutory analysis in many pages. But at base, the court believes that Congress plainly and unambiguously knew how to waive the one motion to reopen requirement, and it chose not to do so in the case of changed country condition motions to reopen to permit non-citizens to apply for asylum. And so holding the Fifth Circuit is holding that the BIA's presidential decision in matter of JG is wrong. Not a great week for presidential BIA asylum-type decisions. And it's got me wondering, 
Under this logic, our change country condition motions to reopen to apply for cat protection dead in the water too? After all, cat protection is simply regulatory. There is no statutory basis that I'm aware of for cat protection. And the Convention Against Torture is not discussed in the INA. This decision is potentially quite expansive. The court did not believe its reading, quote, illogical or superfluous, end quote, and ruled against the petitioners. My final thoughts. Putting aside the regulatory interpretation issue here, I cannot see how this case reaches the correct result or is just. Let's just assume for the moment that indeed the petitioners have a well-founded fear of death if they return to Indonesia, as they very well might. And similar motion to reopen denials are discussed on the podcast like every month. But here, remember, that first motion to reopen was actually a request for reopening of the in absentia removal order way back in 2007 to reopen proceedings based on the deficient NTA. All the tribunals rejected that argument many years ago, but the argument turned out to be right. The Fifth Circuit even said so in Rodriguez. Almost no one was making that argument 15 years ago, but these attorneys were, and it was later deemed to be correct. But now the Fifth Circuit is holding. The filing of that motion 15 years ago is precluding the petitioners from reopening based on changed country conditions to apply for asylum here even though that first motion to reopen should have been granted. Heck, it should be granted now. The petitioners should move the BIA to reconsider its 2007 denial based on Rodriguez, although such a motion to reconsider will have its own time deadline. We've discussed a litany of decisions on the podcast denying deficient NTA-based motions by relying on the logic that the attorneys should have brought the argument pre-Pereira and pre-Nez which almost no one was doing, but here the attorneys did that. But yet that's what's precluding review of the second change country condition motion to reopen here. For what it's worth, the Fifth Circuit did not rule on the substance of the Cantor v. Garland Ninth Circuit type argument, that is whether a deficient NTA will permit a non-citizen to reopen their final order of removal because they've since obtained the 10 years continuous physical presence required of non-LPR cancellation of removal. The Fifth Circuit didn't address that argument because again, it found the motion to reopen, number barred. And that is Digi V. Garland. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official Immigration Review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook, at Immigration Review, and send us a tweet, at ImReview, that's I-M-M Review. 
I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review. Thank you.